don't get distracted by him and filming. And uh, this second chapter, which is also made of 49 different sutras, the first sutra starts in a pretty abrupt way. Patanjali, as you have seen, has not much time to waste, so he's just very square on some things, and there is no more introduction, because he did an introduction once for the first chapter, for the first, for the whole text, and uh, therefore he starts with practical things. However, the practical thing with which Patanjali starts in the first sutra of the chapter number two is pretty confusing, and uh, the reason of it is that Patanjali expresses here a concept which has not been adopted by most of the yogis of the future generations, and that is why what he is saying here is a bit peculiar and is specific only to him. Patanjali says, Tapas, Svadhyaya, and Ishvara Pranidhana, you all who have been in the first month of yoga have heard these names, Tapas, Ishvara, uh, I'm sorry, Tapas, Svadhyaya, and Ishvara Pranidhana, which these are the three last of the Niyamas, there are three important parts of the Niyamas, and he suddenly comes and says, these three out of those ten, out of the last three of those five, if you prefer, Tapas, Svadhyaya, and Ishvara Pranidhana, constitute Kriya Yoga. This is a definition of the Kriya Yoga which is not consistent with anything which is traditional or modern in yoga. Some people today in India, they cling to this just because Patanjali said so. Uh, it's not a good enough reason. Patanjali said so, but apparently it's a matter of name ultimately, because Patanjali simply said this active spiritual part of yoga, in which one is having a life full of tapasya, in which one is doing spiritual self-study, and in which one surrenders to God, one devotes oneself to God, this should be called Kriya Yoga. But wait a second, then Kriya Yoga is having so many other meanings, and of course Patanjali does not refer that this is <coughs> the Kriya Yoga that we here call Kriya Yoga or others. That's why it's simply a game with names. Tentatively, Patanjali, for a reason which is very difficult to discern and which does not appear to the rest of this text, Patanjali has simply stated that according to his opinion, these last three should be called Kriya Yoga. Kriya means to act. Kri, the root Kri is to act. So Kriya Yoga is a kind of yoga of action. You can almost say that Kriya Yoga almost sounds like Karma Yoga, but it has more an action type of meaning. This is entirely arguable. I would like to remind here at this level that Kriya Yoga in India, in classical and modern times, means at least three different things. One, Kriya Yoga, the classical Kriya Yoga, is the yoga of the Shatkarma Kriyas, of the so-called six techniques of purification, which are Dauti, Basti, Trataka, Nauli, and all those which you know. These you have started studying in the first month of these courses, in the second month you have received details about the full system, and slowly, slowly throughout the months of the yoga course, you get to study all those six major classes of Kriyas, with all the techniques contained into them. 
These kriyas, therefore, they are the famous system of yoga of purification, and that has nothing to do with these things, tapas, vadhyaya, ishvara, pranidana. This uh, understanding of kriya yoga as purification techniques is the one which is traditional, and that is why it is the one which we still preserve in this school. Other meanings of Kriya Yoga are that Kriya Yoga would be a sort of Laya Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, some sort of movement of energy yoga. It has been used mostly, or first of all, by Paramahamsa Yogananda. Paramahamsa Yogananda, taking over the system of teaching which he received from uh, his guru Sri Yukteswar, who received it from his guru Lahiri Mahasaya and so forth, uh, they have a system of work which looks very much like some of the techniques that we practice in this school with energy, and that system, he has called it Kriya Yoga. It's again arguable why Kriya Yoga, if we push it a little bit, we can say, yeah, because you are pushing the energy, you are moving the energy, you are doing, okay, Kriya Yoga, a kind of active yoga, a kind of yoga of action. We can live with that. That is the famous Kriya Yoga of Paramahamsa Yogananda. Then, uh, a guru of India, a famous guru of India, Swami Satyananda, in the 1950s-60s, he played with words, he found a strange sense of humor in himself because of some uh, further ulterior motives, and he simply called his own system, which was another version of Laya Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Hatha Yoga, very much uh, resembling the classical yoga and what we teach here, uh, he called it also Kriya Yoga. And now we had two problems. We had the Kriya Yoga of Yogananda, the Kriya Yoga of Satyananda, and the, the Kriya Yoga, the traditional Kriya Yoga of the yogic tradition. Well, besides these three, there exists now the opinion of Patanjali, who says, I suggest, it's my proposal that we should call Tapas Vadhyaya and Ishvara Pranidhana, Kriya Yoga. Exactly what he had in mind is a mystery. Many people presume that these three words are actually uh, code words that he wanted to mean for concentration, meditation and samadhi, for the three last steps of yoga, and to uh, compare them like com concentration of the mind, dharana, like tapas, meditation of uh, meditation or dhyana, like svadhyaya, self-study, because it's a form of knowledge, and Samadhi as Ishvara Pranidhana as, which would fit, and therefore he would say that these three, which he comes back to, by the way, in the chapter number three, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi, these three last higher components of yoga, he would call them Kriya Yoga, most people call them actually Raja Yoga, so the mystery still remains. It is not known until today why he would try to take these three and separate them from the rest of the yoga, when he actually hadn't even defined them, only later he comes and defines these three, and why would he make these three in a so-called Kriya Yoga. And therefore, this remains as a mystery, it's a bit of a clumsy beginning of the chapter number two, by Patanjali, who doesn't tell us too much, he simply proposes a system, and history has uh, denied him in history, only the scholars who really want to go fanatically with Patanjali, either it sounds right or not, they would keep on saying, oh yeah, Kriya Yoga is Tapas Vadhyaya Ishvara Vanda, because that's what Patanjali says. Else, in practice, remember, 
It's not a direct, a directly active statement. In the sutra number two, Patanjali continues a little bit the idea, and he says, this Kriya Yoga, which he decides these levels, is practiced for developing the consciousness of Samadhi and for the purpose of thinning out the cause of afflictions. Well, he starts making a little bit of sense here because he says these things, Tapas, Vadiyaya and Ishvara Pranidana, are used, are practiced for developing the consciousness of Samadhi. So he says that Tapas, Vadiyaya, Ishvara Pranidana are good for developing the consciousness of Samadhi and later he will come to them, but now you understand, practicing Tapas, practicing Svadhyaya, practicing Ishvara Pranidana, the consciousness of Samadhi is favored, is enhanced, and he says, for the purpose of thinning out the cause of afflictions, the afflictions are the kleshas, the impurities of the mind, he spoke about obstacles and negative states of the mind in the chapter number one, now he is going to take them one by one, <clears throat> as you will see, but in another way, from another angle than before. And he says that also this famous Kriya Yoga of his, which means this Tapas, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidana, they are thinning out the cause of afflictions, which simply means these kleshas or impurities of the mind are worn out. They are simply eroded, they are destroyed gradually by the practice of Tapas, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidana. So that's another good information if you ignore this story with Kriya Yoga, which is a bit of a flop. Else, he tells us that Tapas, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidana are good for cultivating the consciousness of Samadhi. And two, he tells us that Tapas, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidana, they are also destroying the kleshas. They are destroying the impurities of the mind. This is a very important statement, it is up to you to meditate a little bit to see, okay, so if I do tapas, I favor my samadhi, I destroy my impurities of the mind. If I do svadhyaya, it will make samadhi more easy for me, and it also destroys some of the kleshas. If I am practicing Ishvara Pranidana, it again makes samadhi easier, more accessible to me, and it at the same time destroys the negativities of the mind. These are very practical conclusions. Actually, if you forget about this Kriya Yoga side road, which leads nowhere. And now, <coughs> he takes the these afflictions, because he said these are thinning out the afflictions. And which are the afflictions? The famous Kleshas. The Klesha is a, a famous concept in Raja Yoga. They represent the five basic impurities of the mind. You will see immediately why there are five. There is a system here. He calls them ignorance, the eye-feeling or egoism, the attachment, the disliking, and the fear of death are the five afflictions, the five kleshas. He uses for ignorance, we translate as ignorance, the Sanskrit word avidya, the opposite of vidya, he uses for egoism the word asmita, which we use as sense of eyeness, ahamkara. So asmita, sense of eyeness, mental egoism. For attachment, he means, he uses the 
or he tra- we translate this from the Sanskrit word raga. Raga means also desire, to be full of desire. And then dvesha, which is disliking, repulsion. Dvesha is the opposite. It's raga and dvesha are like two opposites. And finally, fear of death, which is expressed by the word abhinivesha in Sanskrit. Why is it important? It is important because we are having a parallel spiritual tradition which has been uh, actually grafted from the Indian tradition and that is of course the tradition of Tibetan yoga. In the centuries 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 the Indian yoga migrated over the Himalayas to Tibet and it it gave birth to a special brand of yoga which has many, many similarities to the Indian yoga. It also has some originalities because the Tibetans have used their creativity and they have added some original things to it. And that is the Tibetan version of yoga, what is called today usually the Tibetan yoga. Well, in the Tibetan yoga, there is again a study of the human mind according to the five elements, which are the five chakras. So there you see the tantric part and therefore also according to the five characteristics and therefore five impurities of the mind as well. And if we make a cross-reference, like which are the five poisons of the mind corresponding to the five elements and therefore to the five first chakras, Muladhara, Svadhisthana, Manipura, Anahata, Vishuddha, according to Tibetan yoga and according to Indian yoga. In this way we can understand better what Patanjali said by comparing it with the Tibetan version of those five and we can understand better what the Tibetans thought when they spoke about those by comparing it with the original Patanjali version. And not only that they clarify each other but at the same time they give us some references about the chakra, the element to which these five are related. It starts with ignorance, avidya, and that should be kept very clear. According to Buddha, originally, the source of all human suffering is precisely this, ignorance. Buddha says, the suffering is produced by ignorance, avidya. And therefore, the implication is clear. The worst of them all is ignorance, stupidity, whatever you want to put it, the fact of being blocked from knowing, And that is the root of them all. Uh, That is why the Tibetans also, they have preserved this, they called it stupidity, ignorance. And to make it clear, they have placed it in such a way that it is central. Therefore, they placed it in the fifth element, Akasha Tattva, and related to Vishuddha Chakra. Both in the Indian Tantra and in the Tibetan Tantra, as well as in the alchemy of the West, The five elements are placed on a cross. One is north, one is south, one is east, one is west, and one is in the middle of the cross of the elements. And the one which is in the middle is always Akasha Tattva, the fifth element, and the other four are manifested elements, and Akasha Tattva is a subtle element. This Akasha Tattva corresponds to Vishuddha Chakra, is like the cardinal element of all of them, and this Akasha Tattva the ether, the fifth element, when it is disturbed, it gives rise to ignorance. Which simply says this, a person with a harmonious Vishuddha chakra can be qualified as a knower. 
a person of knowledge, a knowledgeable person. This is the equivalent of the word jnana, from jnana yoga. That's why we can say that a person with an aroused Vishuddha chakra is a jnani, is a jnanin, is a person in possession of jnana, of knowledge. And therefore, we can also say that jnana yoga traditionally is related with Vishuddha chakra, because Vishuddha chakra is the one which gives knowledge. <coughs> that is perhaps for some of you even a more rich understanding of Vishuddha Chakra. Vishuddha Chakra then is a chakra of intellectuality, mind, intuition, knowledge, high knowledge and things like this. That is why Vishuddha Chakra is a chakra which leads to advanced science, advanced knowledge and things like this. <coughs> and Again, this is put on Vishuddha Chakra, which is the highest of the five elements. And this says, when your Vishuddha Chakra is open, and when your Vishuddha Chakra is harmoniously activated, you are a person who has knowledge. What results from this when you put it together with Buddha's statement? The cause of pain is ignorance. When you have Vishuddha Chakra, you have no more ignorance. Therefore, when you have Vishuddha Chakra, you have no more pain. That is why actually in the Hindu mysticism, what comes corresponding to Vishuddha Chakra is Sat-Chit-Ananda, Ananda or Bliss. Therefore, Vishuddha Chakra with the Shakti aspect and all the things which are there, there are so many endless correlations in the Chakra system. Vishuddha Chakra corresponds to the aspect of Ananda, it corresponds to this aspect of Mahashakti, which is the aspect of Akasha, the energy which fills up the universe, and Vishuddha Chakra being the chakra of knowledge, is automatically the destroyer of ignorance, and it is the destroyer of pain, which means anybody who looks upon spirituality as spirituality is a method to destroy pain, you should know that the pain is destroyed already at the level of Vishuddha Chakra. At the level of Vishuddha Chakra and higher up, there is no more pain, because the detachment is so advanced, the knowledge is so profound, that the human being does not experience pain from that level. The pain in the meaning in which Buddha speaks, because Buddha says, he is not speaking about the sensory things, the sensations of, because you can have a pleasant sensation, which actually brings you pain in the end, existentially. You can eat something good which makes you sick or things like this. So, or unhappy. Therefore, Buddha, he speaks about pain and uh, joy in the meaning, in the deeper meanings of happiness and lack of happiness. Therefore, uh, I'm not saying that in Vishuddha Chakra you are not going to have pain in your finger if you catch it in the door. The finger will still hurt, but you will not be unhappy anymore, even if you hurt your finger. Therefore, it's a reference not to organic sensations, but to the happiness which is from inside. This connection is very important, and it also says, if your Vishuddha Chakra is blocked, disturbed, imbalanced, disharmonious, impure, then you will have disturbance in your knowledge, then you will have different amounts of ignorance or stupidity, therefore you will have different amounts of unhappiness, the opposite of happiness. This should be understood very clearly because you see how deep these connections go and how much they tell us. The first, the root, the cornerstone of the five 
is avidya. Tibetan Buddhism says all the others which are whatever, attachment, fear of death, whatever, they are actually caused by the root of ignorance. When you want to boil them down, you boil them down to ignorance. Of course, the five elements, if you want to boil them down, you boil them down to the quinta essentia in Latin, which means quinta, sense today in English, and which is the fifth element, the essence that creates the other four and all the world of the five elements. Therefore, the statement remains valid. Indeed, Vishuddha Chakra is related with ignorance, knowledge, and all the things which I have said, and it is the primordial problem. If Vishuddha Chakra is activated, it's okay. If Vishuddha Chakra is problematic, you have to work on it. This tells us something about the little understood feeling, uh, importance of Vishuddha Chakra. The second mention here under the word Asmita is eye-feeling or egoism. This has some interesting connections. It will appear like it corresponds next to the air element, to the second element, if you can conceive that there is or any order in this. It seems that actually here Patanjali has preserved the order. In the Tibetan Buddhism, the impurity or the klesha which corresponds to the air element is called by them, funny enough, jealousy. It is, of course, at odds with everything you know about the psychology of the chakras, because we keep insisting in this school that jealousy is this kind of jealousy classical phenomenon, which you have the sexual jealousy, which exists between sexual partners, uh, and we fight so much with it in Tantra. This kind of jealousy is on Svadhisthana. We always say this is a disorder of Svadhisthana. It appears that here we have three things. Anahata chakra, asmita, sense of I-ness, which is indeed something with a jivatman, I-I, but it's an inferior I-ness. It's still a limitation. And why not some phenomena from the heart, of desire from the heart, they might, according to the Tibetans, when you relate them with sense of I-ness, they may generate maybe some sort of envy or jealousy. This is not completely elucidated until today in the modern psychology of yoga. It is one of the places where the Tibetan and the Indian tradition slightly differ from each other. Perhaps from this difference they can actually enrich each other by bringing additional meaning. The third one in this list is called here attachment. The Sanskrit word is raga, which means desire. It's a little bit like rajas guna, rajas raga. It's the same family. It means desire, desire, desire. Actually, the Tibetans have called it just the same, only that they have given to it the name of inferior desires. They consider that the fire element and Manipura chakra contain as their poison this characteristic, which means you are full of inferior desires. Sometimes the typical Manipura type of person can develop some very, very inferior desires, like you can look upon it in what's happening in the Japanese sexuality, or in other directions like this, and sometimes the, it develops, it's like a desire, it's like you are burning with a desire, but that in desire can become quite gross, inferior, bizarre, simply because it's like a disease that is poisoning you, it's like a terrible poison in one's blood. And therefore... Here we are consistent to the fact that 
Patanjali quotes third desire attachment as a pain related to the fire element. Then the fourth klesha is disliking, rejection. It is dvesha, raga dvesha. If you have raga dvesha as two opposites, you have fire and water as two opposites. You have the thing of Manipura as attraction, desire, and the opposite of desire, rejection. Very often, in Svadhisthana Chakra, the human being manifests all kind of rejections. The most subtle form of it being this kind of social rejection, which you can see in terms of snobbishness. I uh, have contempt for you. I despise you. I'm not going to talk with those kind of people. I'm not this kind of rejection, which says I don't like him, I don't like her. It is actually, a, it is dvesha, the opposite of raga, and it is something which tells you something about the cold nature of Svadhisthana. While Manipura has this warm nature, I want, I desire, even if sometimes I desire terrible things, and uh, it, it can drive me nuts. In Svadhisthana is the cold fish type of thing. I don't like this. I don't want this. I am snobbish. Uh, let That person should not touch me. I hate you. I hate this. I dislike. This kind of typical attitude is a typical thing for Svadhisthana, which actually has some of its folks profiled exactly on this kind of energy. Funny enough, this dislike, the Tibetans have considered it more, and again it's one of the pretty odd things in the psychology of Tibetan yoga, where again it, it, it is not fitting exactly with Indian yoga. The Tibetans have called this poison of mind anger. It is obvious that from dislike there will result anger. Like I don't like you, therefore I'm barking at you because you are like something which I hate, despise, want to chase out of my life don't want to see you, I'm not mingling with people like you, I don't want this, I don't want that. This rejection can manifest also under the forms of hate. So here we have three dimensions, Vadistana Chakra and the water element, dislike, rejection in India, in India, yoga, in Patanjali, and anger, but a special brand of anger, they say in Tibetan Buddhism, as manifestation of this element. Finally, for the fourth element, I'm sorry, for the fifth of the forms of kleshas, uh, the fifth one of them, which would automatically correspond to Muladhara Chakra, is called here the fear of death. It is an absolutely true thing that a strong Muladhara Chakra gives an incredibly strong fear of death. The people who are very Muladharistic they usually are afraid to think about death because death is like they feel it in the bones. It's really frightening. And the persons who are, for example, air signs or some really light, they usually don't think so much about it. They take a more butterfly-like attitude to it. And therefore, that's exactly indeed fear of death is one of the radical fears because it's in Muladhara with its paranoia and with this... Uh, slow fears, like I'm afraid that I'm going to die, actually this has been found out to be an extraordinary motivator in spiritual practice. When your Muladhara Chakra is strong and you do have a nice fear of death, that will motivate you to do hours and hours of yoga and meditation every day, and funny enough, it will save your ass in the end. Therefore, it is actually a good motivation, 
but this fear of death, if it is not processed in a spiritual way, like, hey, I'm afraid of death. Well, I, I better do something then. If I'm afraid of death, then I... No, but I'm afraid of death. I refuse to admit it. I refuse to look into it. I refuse to become aware of it. That That is why everything which I do in my life is actually uh, a paranoia. It is actually an emanation of that fear of death. Swami Shivananda goes as far as saying that people who commit murder, they, the murderers, they commit murder because of fear of their own death and by killing somebody they get the fake signal that actually they can defeat death, that they have power over death. They kill somebody to demonstrate to themselves that they are that they are not going to die. They think that by killing somebody they kill death or they prove that they have power over that. So actually he says people who kill, they usually are people with big muladhara and who are very afraid of death they themselves. And this definitely applies to the neurotic killers, to the psychopathic killers who are uh, definitely having that kind of temperament. And uh, fear of death is replaced by the Tibetans, by the way of earth element and this, with another funny one, they call it vanity. They discovered in this Muladhara thing a certain form of arrogance. Again, people say it doesn't fit because anger from Zvadistana, it was more like Manipura. Now you are mentioning vanity or arrogance and this also seems to be Manipura. There seems to be a little bit of a salad. I will not uh, deny that the two forms, the two values of the two yogas do not fit entirely. I would like to call your attention on the simple elementary fact that the translation of Sanskrit and Tibetan words in Western words is and cannot be perfect, delimited to a thing. That's why when they say anger, they can mean hysteria or they can, like hysterical anger or something, a special form. That Sanskrit or Tibetan word can be interpreted one way. When they say vanity or arrogance, they can mean something. For example, you can say that an elephant looks arrogant or vanitous because it's so big and it steps so carelessly over bushes and trees and it behaves like it's the king of the jungle. And in this big mulatharistic presence of the elephant or of a buffalo or something, there seems to exist a kind of spontaneous arrogance. Like, I'm big, make place, I'm coming here, you know. It's not really an arrogance or vanity like you would study it in the samurai culture. It's a, from Manipura. It's a vanity which is more like a, a bully type, bully boy type of organic uh, massive presence. And uh, therefore, yes, the Tibetans claim that in Muladhara they discovered also the root of a special form of arrogance, vanity. Uh, the yogis from India represented here by Patanjali, they have been sticking to the epitome of the impurities of Muladhara, more like fear of death. Let's sum up. Ignorance, stupidity for Akasha Tattva and Vishuddha Chakra. Egoism, the eye feeling of egoism of individuality, jealousy and uh, for Anahata Chakra and the air element. Attachment, inferior desires for the fire element and Manipura Chakra disliking, rejection, anger uh, for the water element, and fear of death, vanity, arrogance for the earth element. 
what I have tried to show you here is that these kleshas have been perpetuated in Tibetan Buddhism and the Tibetan yogis have their own system of working with these kleshas. It's not only Patanjali, this is a universal system of yoga that according to the five chakras they found the poisons and the good parts of the five elements. That's what, that's why there are five kleshas corresponding to the five chakras. In this school, in the moment when you'll get the initiation into the Kala Chakra system, which is from Tibetan yoga, there you'll find the Tibetan-inspired system for purifying each element, the so-called Buddha Shuddhi, or purification of the element, for thus fighting directly with those five kleshas, with those five impurities. So, <clears throat> this being said, Patanjali has informed us about the five kleshas. That is the field of them. And then, of course, now, according to his good spirit, he will explain a little bit about each and every one of them before describing the methods for getting rid of them. The fourth sutra from, sec from chapter number two says, Avidya, or the ignorance, is the field for the other kleshas, be them in the states of dormant, thin, scattered, or expanded. There are two halves to this sutra. First of all, he tells us, avidya, the ignorance, is the field for the other kleshas, which means the others are possible because of avidya. That's why avidya is their mother. Avidya is the parent of all. The whole scene is in a series from avidya asmita, the, is born from Asmita, Raga is born, the desire, the attachment, from Raga, Dvesha, or the repulsion is born, from Dvesha, Abhinivesha, the fear of death is born. So they are like a chain, exactly like the chain of creation, from Akasha, air, from air, fire, from fire, water, from water, earth, and those are the elements. So the root cause of all these is Avidya, hence it must be properly understood. If one is able to control Avidya, one will easily control all the other kleshas. This gives us the solution for some sort of superior yoga, in which you don't need to go in the lower chakras. It's not entirely correct version, but from the standpoint of the Raja Yoga of Patanjali, it is, in which it means that if you control Vishuddha chakra and further up, you control ignorance. If you have no ignorance, you are not going to have the other ones, because knowledge heals every other form of poison of the mind. Therefore, you should do Jnana Yoga, Raja Yoga, the high yogas, and then you'll destroy all the other types of poison. So, therefore, the idea, the first idea is clear. Avidya is the mother of all of them, this I had already told. And then it says it's the field for the other kleshas, be them in the states of dormant, thin, scattered, or expanded. He basically makes a subclassification. Each klesha, each of these impurities, can be in four stages. Again, that's arbitrary. They can be in seven stages or in three stages. Patanjali decided to give them four degrees, four degrees of intensity, which he calls them here dormant, thin, scattered, or expanded. <clears throat> dormant means latent. It's not active. I can have, for example, raga, but if my raga is dormant, it means I am not afflicted by this impurity. The impurity of Raga on Manipura is dormant, which means latent, zero. And if I don't bring it to life, it will be kept out. 
thin, which means a little bit, just a thin layer of it, or it can be uh, scattered, which means like it's already spreading, it's all over the place, and expanded, which means like in the expansion of the energy, completely active, fully blown into proportion. Therefore, these are just orientative measures, which simply, by which he gave four degrees of how developed these kleshas are. He is not using directly this classification for anything. It is just to give you a mental representation, a good mental image about those. And now he continues, since Avidya is the mother of all, it should receive perhaps most attention, because it's like the moat point, the crucial point. It is literally the crucial point because it's in the middle of the cross of the elements. Avidya, in the sutra number five, therefore, he defines it. Avidya is to mistake the non-eternal for eternal, the impure for pure, the evil for good, and the manifestation for Atman. This is pure discrimination, pure viveka. <coughs> that simply means the opposite of avidya is viveka, the discriminative knowledge. Because actually when you do not have vidya, when you have avidya, you are mistaking the non-eternal for eternal, so you can discriminate. The impure for pure, the evil for good, the manifestation for Atman. These are all such deep statements. They require a lot of meditation and it requires for you to see what is what. For example, to mistake the non-eternal for eternal. What are you giving more price to? To your immortal soul or to your body? Most people from, Karm, from Kali Yuga, they take care of their body but they don't take care of their immortal soul. They mistake the eternal for the non-eternal. They pay attention to something which will be eaten by the worms after a while, and they do not pay attention to that thing which was eternal and which truly matters. To defile your body is nothing compared with defiling your soul. Even Jesus, who was such a hard moralist at times, even Jesus forgave very easily the so-called sins of the flesh. People who did this or that, they broke some things, some uh, elementary rules, rules about what they ate and what they didn't eat and what they had sex with and what they didn't have. But when it came to the sins against the spirit, he suddenly became completely intolerant, like out of proportion. Today, a man like Jesus would easily be considered a fanatic, a fundamentalist, a complete dangerous person because he is so fanatic. Why does he... He is worse than all the sects of today. He is so punctilious and so meticulous on this that somebody was a little bit like this or was saying, telling a lie about that or this, ah, you know. You know how the world is. No, no, not for Jesus. That is why this is part of this. It's Vishuddha Chakra again. What did I tell you often when we spoke about Vishuddha Chakra? People who lose their Vishuddha Chakra, and Vishuddha Chakra is such a handicapped chakra in our times in Kali Yuga, they lose morality. There is no more pure and impure. Anything goes. For example, people will make difference between, I don't know, a sexual orientation and another sexual orientation, this and that, and people will say, you can't speak about this. It's not politically correct. 
You cannot answer what if in the Bible it writes that this and that. No, no. You can't speak. Everything goes. Today everybody is free. Not for Jesus. Try to imagine what would have Jesus reacted for, for example, when confronted with male homosexuality. Try to imagine the reaction of Jesus about that, and you'll understand exactly what I'm saying. Today, it's politically correct to say, well, everybody can do whatever. Yes, I agree with that. Democratically and legally and socially, it is so. But from the standpoint of a Jesus, Jesus is completely intransigent when it comes to things like that. Because he is a Puritanist. He reacts from Vidya. Avidya or Vidya. It's from Vishuddha Chakra. And from Vishuddha Chakra, these things are black and white. There are no uh, compromises. There are no things like this. And that is why uh, here you have to understand very deep this, that you mix the eternal with the non-eternal. How, how often we do this? Look at the whole human civilization. People build pyramids and Eiffel Towers and things like this. Are they eternal? No, they are not eternal. Therefore, what is more important? Somebody who built a tower or somebody who got enlightened? Our modern culture seems to praise inventors, discoverers, people like this who did things completely transient, like those things are of any importance. And if somebody lived in a cave and they never had family, children, they never contributed to something, people say, ah, you know, those people are no good, they are damaged goods, you know. <clears throat> you have to be useful. To be useful to what? To something which now is here and now is not here? The countries, the nations, the languages, the knowledge, the pyramids, the Eiffel Towers, and everything, they come and go in a hundred thousand years, none of the nations of this world will be there. None of the countries of this world will be the same. The pyramids will be turned to dust. Everything will be different in a million years or whatever. Then why focus on them? Why focus on what is not eternal? Ah, that in the tantric tradition we try to include both in a spiritual... That's something else. But Patanjali is not a tantric yogi and he speaks actually from the standpoint of Avidya Vishuddha Chakra that here in Vishuddha Chakra the point is to discriminate. Is it possible for, uh, for example, uh, one like Ramakrishna, who is obviously aware of the eternal and non-eternal, to help somebody just like this? Like, for example, if Ramakrishna will take 20 paisa or uh, one rupee and give it to a beggar, it's kind of how eternal is that one rupee? What did you do? Or, okay, I'm doing something even bigger. I find a person who sleeps on the street and I give them a shelter. Wow, I am so good, I am so charitable. How much will this last? Have I done something eternal? No, it's far from eternal. I have satisfied the very inferior need of that person, which is true, for that person was very important. But I cannot say that I have helped the immortal soul of that person. Then instead of finding a house for them, I would have better taught them the truths of Buddha. That would have been helping their immortal soul, not finding them a shelter. But if I find for them a shelter, they are also very grateful to me. And it also is said that, hey, I have done something good. Therefore, remember that from the level of Ramakrishna or Jesus or whoever you want of this caliber, they look and they say, hey, there is something eternal and not eternal. I want when I help this person, I want to help 
the eternal part and the not eternal part. Yes, I'm also going to give her one rupee. And I know that's not the eternal part, but I am working for the non-eternal part as well. But still, I'm not mixing them in my mind. I know that this is this and this is that. This clarity is necessary. This is the knowledge. If you mix the eternal with the non-eternal, and you, in, you mix the values in your mind, nobody says that you should not pay attention to the things which are not eternal. You are very welcome, but you should know that you pay attention to things which are not eternal. You should do it with full awareness. I know that there is an eternal part, and I'm thinking about that, and I'm supporting that, and yes, I know that there is a not eternal part, which for some people seems to matter quite a lot, and I'm taking as much as possible care of that as well. Therefore, you, this automatically makes you set your priorities, both for yourself, how can I help myself, eternal or not eternal. It's kind of easy to say, well, I don't know, Walter came to yoga, and Walter was 83 years old, and he was breaking down, and my question is what? Shall I now start making Walter perfectly healthy, useful, kundalini yoga, tantric yogi? It's a bit of a utopia. If Walter is 83 years old, it means he's got a few years to live until he dies. If I realize the difference between eternal and not eternal, what's my first advice to Walter? I'm telling him, Walter, study the art of dying, immediately read the Bardo Todol, here is the initiation in Pova and the relevant mantras, study this, because I know, eternally that's the best way to help him. I can give him the hope that Walter, in parallel, if you do Hatha Yoga very well and Kriya Yoga, do Shankrakshalana, do this, do this, and your body will rejuvenate, your body will regenerate, your body will revitalize, and maybe you'll get to live 120 years, a very long life. That's fine. But because I had discrimination, I knew that that's the second priority. Because the first priority was to save the man's soul. He might die in six months. Then I will blame myself. I will say, this guy came to me six months before his death. In those six months, I should have done the best of the best to help his soul, not to help his body. Because, see, I tried to help his body and he died anyhow. I should have saved the soul as much as possible. That's what a lucid, discriminative person would do. Not waste their time with things which are secondary, because they should make the priorities really clear. Therefore, that's a typical thing. All the tantric texts and the Indian spiritual texts, they mention this difference, this lack of discrimination, as typical for Kali Yuga. In Kali Yuga, people have forgotten to distinguish what is eternal from what is not eternal, and they pay attention to trinkets, while they are not paying attention to what is truly important, the eternal. And he continues to mistake the impure for pure. We just spoke how many things today are considered pure when they are actually impure. Many people take people or manifestations which religiously, spiritually, are typical impure, and they say, you know that person, oh, this was so pure, it was so nice, and somebody will say, you know what Jesus says, let's turn back to Jesus, because he is such a stern moralist. Jesus says, a good tree cannot produce bad fruits, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruits. 
That simply means if we are talking about something impure, it's impure and that's the end of it, you know. Don't try to pamper me that those guys are bad, but they actually did something good also. That's valid in movies. For Jesus, it's not valid. Jesus is on the opinion that what emerges from evil bears the seed of evil in it. What is impure <coughs> bears the seed of impurity in it. And that is why to mix the pure with the impure is a tragedy. It's one of the bigger... It's again Vishuddha, pure and impure. Vidya, he speaks about Vidya, Avidya. It's eternal, non-eternal, pure for impure. And that is happening so often, so often today. Try to think how many things in some cultures, like Western, European, American, whatever, other cultures are today considered pure while they are deeply impure, and how many things in other cultures are pure while they are being considered impure, and so on. Therefore, uh, again, try to report yourself to the tradition and to see that some things can be very, very different. And to mix up between the evil for good. Who are the good guys and who are the evil guys in this culture? Now in the 21st century, if I'm asking those of you who are still under the influence of the world media to draw a line and to tell us who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, you might reach the conclusions which are completely different from the conclusions of Shambhala or from the conclusions of the spiritual people. Uh, I, again, could go to the limit of provoking you on this. Since these are lectures on a very serious text of yoga, I don't want to go there. But you can find your own provocation. Try to see how far this kind of thing can go. We have some people who are fundamentalistically religious on this planet, and they suddenly would be considered as evil while some people who are just a bunch of crooks and materialists and devils with human faith, they are considered to be good. Let's not to mention about the other ones, but all the gentlemen who do financial deals on Wall Street, they are considered to be decent citizens, charitable people and pillars of the society. I guess if Jesus would be there, he would take a big stick and chase them out, all of them, as he did in the temple in his own days. Therefore, pure and impure, good and evil, is not always what it looks uh, like being. And remember that some things can be indeed evil. For example, try to consider this thing. How difficult it is to build up the faith of people. Try to take just the history of Jesus again. Jesus did so many miracles, an overwhelming range of miracles, that we find its equivalent hardly on this planet and only in some unconfirmed historical events. We still hear rumors that some uh, Mahasiddha from Tibet raised the dead from the grave or that I don't know who walked on water or on a moonbeam but those are not authentified historically. Most of them come from the field of legends. As about Jesus we know it almost like history, almost like Palestinian history 2000 years ago that this guy walked the surface of the earth and apparently did some incredible stuff and he kept on doing it one after another, one after another, one after another in a row like he was inexhaustible. And what was happening around him when he did this? People had no faith 
How many times Jesus comes to his disciples? Like when, for example, they get scared of a storm. They are on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And then there is one of these sudden storms coming from the desert. And the sea gets agitated. And they get completely flustered. And they wake up Jesus. And Jesus immediately stops the storm. And he says, Oh ye of little faith. How often does Jesus use this syntax? Oh ye of little faith. Like I am showing you miracles every day. And you see that God is here. And you have no faith. When they crucified Jesus, his own apostles denied him. And they ran away like chickens, like scared chickens. What? You have been living three years with a man who walks on water and raises the dead. And you just stay like an idiot like this. And you lose your faith just like this. How is that possible? That shows how poor the human faith is. It shows how weak the human being is. Today you see somebody raising the dead, and tomorrow you say, but what if he is not true? What if all this was just a fake? Human mind, abominable human mind, that's what it is. This is our condition. It happens that you enter in mystical state, and then the next day you ask yourself if it was true, or if you really reached it. How difficult it is to build faith. How much it took to Jesus to build faith in those people. How much it took to all the Babas and all the prophets from the Old Testament and to all the yogis and the seers and saints. How much it took to them to build faith. How many of them died? How many of them have been mocked and persecuted? How many of them worked in vain and they have been treated badly? How many of them have been martyrized and this? How much blood and how much sweat had to flow in this mankind for somebody to develop faith, all of it being just a battle that, hey, live your life with faith, even if you can't see it because you are blind, believe that the Supreme Consciousness is there for you, is there with you supporting. It's such a difficult thing, no, to surrender, to live your life with this confidence and with this surrender. And here we have on one hand all the yogis and seers and the prophets and the mystics and this, working hard, shedding their blood to create faith in humanity. And then you have some dude who pretends himself a scientist who comes to destroy faith. He comes into some Discovery Channel crap broadcasting, like Arthur C. Clarke, the pedophile, who comes and talks about, uh, oh, actually, there is no faith and there is no nothing. Isn't that the devil? Actually, if Jesus is building faith, and somebody is coming and undermining faith. What would you consider that to be? That is a devil, actually. It's a manifestation of the diabolic. Therefore, actually from the standpoint of one like Jesus, Arthur C. Clarke is manipulated by the devil. He's a minion of the di diabolic forces. Because what is he spreading on this planet? Skepticism. Doubt. Sickly doubt. Lack of faith. You are not supposed to believe and walk forward with your belief full of confidence. You are supposed to have this sick mind. That is why you see in Kali Yuga, we can't see the difference. What is good and what is evil? From the standpoint of Jesus or Milarepa, other things are evil than those things which we consider today that they are evil. Take and meditate carefully upon this example with faith, not to mention things about morality, purity, and then you are going to see actually where the actual evil of this world resides. And the evil for good and the manifestation for Atman. 
the manifestation for Atman. You are considering that the self is this or the self is that. Exactly like the ridiculous things in which animistic or shamanistic people will say, this is God, God is this. No, it isn't. This, this statement is a wrong type of statement because you are mixing up the Atman with the manifestation. It is exactly as Jesus said, God is spirit. It's kind of, you don't find that in the manifestation. The manifestation is bearing some resonances. It's a symbolic representation. It's a copycat of that. And symbols from the manifestations like this and the yantras and others, they can be used for representing the great mystery which is Purusha or Atman. But you should not mix them up. They don't mix up. They represent the two sides. If you mix up the two sides, then you are mixing up the deeper meanings of existence and of your life. And therefore, here Patanjali has been brilliant because he has told us exactly what Avidya is. This is a sutra to be meditated. You want to know because why? Especially because Avidya is the root cause of all the other poisons of the mind. Therefore, what you should ask yourself always is, am I ignorant or am I in knowledge? What is knowledge? Knowledge is to be able to distinguish the eternal from the non-eternal, the impure from the pure, the evil from the good, the manifestation from the non-manifestation. Do I do this in my life? This is the way I live my life? Then I am having vidya, jnana, knowledge, then I have probably eradicated many of my kleshas, then I am not in danger to fall victim to those, and because I have acquired through knowledge, then I will have happiness because I have eliminated my pain. That is the way to eliminate pain, by distinguishing between the non-eternal and eternal, by knowing exactly the difference between good and evil, pure and impure, manifestation and non-manifestation, this is the one which according to Buddha, by implication, brings happiness. And therefore, this is to be meditated because avidya is the radical one. My observation is that Vishuddha chakra is a difficult chakra on this planet. Very many people have a smaller than they should have Judah chakra. It's a bit of a persecuted chakra on this planet. I must admit Vishuddha chakra is not a comfortable chakra, it's not a tolerant chakra, it's not a very friendly chakra because it is sharp like diamond in this way, but without a certain degree of it, we cannot live properly, we cannot get out of ignorance, and therefore we cannot reach a state of happiness. That is the secret of Vidya or Avidya according to Patanjali and its implications in Tibetan Buddhism and the others. With this we'll finish for today. There is no more time right now. We are going to conclude with a short five-minute meditation on Ajna Chakra to deepen the meanings of Patanjali's revelation, after which we'll stop for tonight. Please assume a gentle meditation position. Meditate by whichever method you have at your disposal on Ajna Chakra, the third eye, trying to let this knowledge settle down in your mind and be absorbed harmoniously.